Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered Him is the best thing that's happened in our lives. And making Him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. If you're hungry for that encounter, if you're dying to know the love of God, which alone makes sense out of life, if you're longing to know that you matter so much, and that His power can fill you with all that you need so that you can be the man or the woman that you want to be, then join me and dig into the Scriptures and the teachings of the Church so that we can find the life that Jesus has made us for. Father Ricardo conducted a Lenten mission on personal evangelism. He spoke about the normalcy of faith and that each of us evangelizes or doesn't evangelize by how we speak and act. He pointed out that all in attendance belong to the parish evangelism team. He pointed out that each of us is an intentional disciple of Jesus. On this first night of the mission, he spoke of his family, his earliest memory of Jesus, growing up with an invalid mother, her miraculous healing, his college years, the indecision that followed, and his dramatic call to the priesthood. Father Ricardo begins this 2010 Lenten mission with his first talk, The Lights That Led Me to the Light. The whole point of this mission for us as a parish, these four nights is this idea of us being light. And that's the idea this whole mission long is for different ones of us to stand in front. So we're going to have a testimony each night to begin and different people every morning after Mass so that we can see one another and get comfortable with the idea of one another telling one another about the difference that Jesus makes. That's the whole point. So welcome. St. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, In chapter 3, he says, Nothing can outweigh the advantage of knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing can outweigh the advantage of knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing, no one. I couldn't think of a better passage in the scriptures to hold up in front of us as we come together as a family than that one. It's my incredibly fervent desire, not only as pastor of Our Lady of Good Counsel, but at least canonically, the pastor of all the people who live in this boundary, for that to be experienced. For all of us, starting with me, to continually come to know that, to be convinced of that, to not just memorize the verse in St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, but to come to know the reality, the person behind the verse, that nothing is more important, nothing can make the difference in our lives, like knowing Him. And when we know Him, it's impossible not to shine. It's impossible. Just like when you meet somebody who does something incredible, who changes your life remarkably, or you fall in love with somebody, you don't hide that. You tell people, and other people can tell that you've met someone, that something's happened, that something's different in your life now. And so it is supposed to be for us as Catholics. I can still remember very clearly, shortly after I was asked to come here by Cardinal Maida to serve, walking through this church with Father John Sullivan. And he was walking me all around, very proudly, to talk about all the different things and all the nuances that are part of the construction of this church and explaining the rationale behind why things were done. And I'm extremely grateful for him taking the time to do that. There's still a lot I have to learn and a lot that I'm still trying to catch up in even after three years, but I'm grateful. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. And there's one thing in particular that I remember. You remember that light. You can't see it from in here. You can only see it when you're driving by. But there's a part of this church which is very intentional, which hopefully we know, but maybe we don't. This is, if I understand correctly, the third highest piece of land in Wayne County. The first is the old hospital, which is now closed. The second is the former St. John Seminary, which a friend of mine affectionately refers to it as God's world of golf. <laughs> which I don't have a problem with. So there's the old hospital, God's world of golf, and then us. We're the third highest spot in Wayne County. And perhaps because of that, when this church was built, Father John and the building committee, I'm not sure who else was involved in it, but they made a point to put on the top of the church a red light. That's not so planes won't fly into it. Maybe that's why you thought it was up there. It's not for planes. 
It's for all the people who drive by. Why a red light? Same reason we got this red light. There's a red light that hangs here. There's a red light that hangs on the other side. If you've never been on the other side of this wall, you're welcome to go there any time. That's where we have a small Eucharistic chapel. There's another red light that hangs there. What's this red light tell you if you're Catholic? It tells you that you're in the presence of Jesus. It tells you that right nearby, in this golden box, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord, hidden under the appearance of bread. So why that light? That light, because Father John and parish council and all the people at the time of the construction of the church wanted every single person who drove by this building to know what they were driving by, to know they were driving by a Catholic church. Jesus says in Matthew 5, a city set on a hill can't be hidden. That's a somewhat easier verse to truly understand if you go, say, to Europe, especially if you go to Italy, where half of my family is from anyway. So you travel through the hillsides in Italy and you're driving down the freeways and it's just pasture for miles and miles and miles and miles. And all the cities in Italy are built on top of hills. And you're driving in the middle of the night and it's pitch black. And there's no lights. And then all of a sudden, off in the distance, you see a hill and lights emanating from the hill. That tells you it's a city. That tells you there's people there. That tells you it's safe. That tells you you can find fellowship and friendship and the Lord who's behind it all. That's the image that Jesus has in mind when he says a city set on a hill can't be hidden. It might be hidden here in suburban Detroit, but it can't be hidden in places like Italy, in most of the world, where those hillside cities still exist. And if it's true that Father John and the parish council and the builders of the church wanted everybody to know what the building was when people drove by, it's even more true that people want to know who we are who worship in the building. And thus the theme of this week, light. I think I mentioned a couple of times at Mass, probably back towards the beginning of the year, in fact, I think it was the Feast of Epiphany, when we celebrate that star which the Magi followed. We actually placed it on the Holy Card. I hope you all have one of these. If you don't, please take one on the way out. we got about 25,000 of them, so there's plenty for you to give out. Take one, give them to your neighbor, put them on the people's desks at work, whatever. I think I already have 10 serving as bookmarks. But the front is turning up the flame to set the world on fire. On the back side is this short quote from Pope Benedict in a letter that he wrote on hope a couple of years ago now, which I continue to go back to over and over again. And he says this at a certain point. Human life is a journey towards what destination? How do we find the way? Life is like a voyage on the sea of history often dark and stormy, a voyage in which we watch for the stars that indicate the route. He's playing on the image here. I'm not a sailor, but I've been on the sea a number of times. And Even today, if you lose your GPS and your navigational system and you're at sea, how do you find where you're going? You look to the stars. Certainly how everybody did before GPSs. The true stars of our life, he says, are the people who have lived good lives. They are lights of hope. Certainly Jesus Christ is the true light, the sun that has risen above all the shadows of history. But to reach him, we also need lights close by, people who shine with his light and so guide us along our way. So for the next four nights in one way or another, that's what we're going to talk about. How to do this, how to be lights. In a particular way, I'm going to talk about in the next couple of nights, What is it that God expects of us as his people? Not just of those of us who are a collar or who are deacons. It's probably easier for you to try to imagine what God expects of me or Father Servo or Father White or Father Stanley with whom it's a great joy to serve here. But oftentimes I find that laymen and women aren't clear what it is that the Lord expects of us. So these next few nights, that's what we're going to talk about. Tonight I want to do something a little different. Tonight I want to share something about my life. I want to tell you a little bit about who I am, how I got here, what God has done in my life. And I want to do this for one reason primarily, which might not become clear until the end. So good grief, if you brought stuff to take notes, please don't take notes on tonight. (laughs) The brothers that I live with, we talk about this frequently. How important it is for those whom we serve to know us for lots of reasons. Obviously, most people who come to a Catholic church only see us at Mass. 
when you experience us saying Mass, hopefully you don't really experience us, you just experience the Lord. Because who we are at that point is really absolutely insignificant. We're just vessels in his hands. But there can be a difficulty in that sometimes if that's the only interaction we have with one another because a lot of things can happen. You can put us up on a pedestal, which we should not be on, or you can think that somehow we didn't share some of the things that you've shared in or the struggles and the difficulties that you have in your life, and we have. So I want to share something of how I got to where I am and what I'm doing. Before I do that, let me say this real quickly. God has been extremely good to me as a priest. I'll be 14 years ordained this May. And every place that I've been has been phenomenal. I mean that very sincerely. But this is an amazing place to serve. And it's an amazing place to serve because of you who belong here. And I want to tell you, in my prayer, my sense, it's been coming for some time. I not only think God has been doing things here for a long time, I think we're on the cusp of something extremely significant. For whatever reason, more and more and more and more and more people are coming to understand that to be Catholic is not necessarily to mean it's the place where I happen to go to church. It means I know Jesus. I know him. Or I'm beginning to know him. Or I'm knowing him ever more each day. And in a way that I can't ever remember seeing as a priest, I'm seeing that happen. And I'm seeing that happen because you in the pews are telling one another, just like Mary did as we began, Perhaps it's a courage that some of us never had or a sense that we didn't know we were ever supposed to do that. But we're stepping out perhaps out of our comfort zones and telling others, hey, you should come to this Wednesday morning Bible study. Well, it's not really a Bible study. It's just a bunch of guys who get together we talk about our lives. Or you should come to Father White's Great Adventure Bible study on Tuesday nights. Or you should come to one of the umpteen thousand seemingly fellowships and opportunities that we have here. The way this is happening, the only way it happens, is we're tapping each other on the shoulder, inviting each other personally, saying, hey, what are you doing tomorrow night? Because I've been coming to this thing for a couple of weeks. It's been tremendous. I never would have thought so, but it's been tremendous. And that's happening. I want you to know that we see it, I see it, how pleasing it is, and how extremely pleasing it has to be to God to watch his children come to know him more deeply and then step out and tell each other what's going on. But tonight, again, I want to tell you a little bit about me. A little bit about me. I am the spoiled brat of five children, which my siblings, one of whom is here, will be more than happy to tell you. I'm the youngest of five kids. My oldest sister is 14 years older than I am. Then there's one 12 years older than I. Then there's one who's 10 years older than I, although she looks younger than me. And then I have a brother who's six years older than me and then me. I'm not supposed to be here. I know I mean that. I'm really not supposed to be here. My mom was uh, seriously sick. Had an accident, really. It wasn't so much a sickness. It was a disability that she had several years before I was born. The doctors told her that she would never be able to have any more children. And she obviously got pregnant with me. And this is one of those things where mothers and their sons have this amazing relationship. There's a lot of things that we just don't talk about that somehow we know. More so on her side than on mine, which was very annoying as a teenager. (laughs) I mean, very annoying. I used to come home at night and there would be notes slipped under my door just saying, Honey, I'm praying for you. And it was just horrific as a teenager because I, I knew she knew everything I was doing without ever saying it. But without her and I ever saying this, although she's heard me say this before and she's never contradicted me, so in one way or another, after she got pregnant, she was told to end the pregnancy. And I'm eternally grateful that she didn't. That right from the beginning of my life, my mother gave me an extraordinary witness of motherhood, of long-suffering, of putting others first, of being willing to shoulder the cross, even at great potential risk to herself. Thanks be to God, she more than survived the pregnancy. Not quite sure how well I did, but she did fine. So I'm uh, the youngest of five kids. We lived in a family which I all the time just describe as one where faith was normal. I don't know any other way to say that. It wasn't a religious family, partly because my family wasn't all Catholic. My mom was Methodist. My mom was Methodist first 14 years of my life. She became Catholic shortly after Pope John Paul II was elevated to the 
chair of St. Peter. But before that, she was a Methodist. She came to church with us every Sunday, but she wasn't Catholic. And so because of that, in large part, I'm sure, our home had no devotions whatsoever in it. Parents often come to me and say, you know, should we pray the rosary as a family together or should we do different things together? You know, I can give insight and whatnot on that, but in my home, we never prayed the rosary. I'm sure we went to Stations of the Cross, but I don't remember it. We didn't do any of the things that looked religious, but we lived in a home where God was just remarkably and almost ridiculously real. My mom and dad just talked about God. He peppered everything that we did. And they were from very different backgrounds. My mom was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. She came from a very wealthy family. She lived in Gross Point. She was raised in Gross Point. Her father, my grandfather, who's passed away now, all my grandparents are passed away. He's the only man who's ever intimidated me, I think, in my life. He used to scare the living daylights out of me. This guy came from nothing, and he made everything. He was a big, strong, strapping guy with a big barrel chest. And he just had this imposing presence whenever he was in a room. And it was very uncomfortable. He was a very gracious guy, very good man, but he was just, there was a formality about him, which was uh, unnerving as a child, I guess. So he he was the French-Canadian side. His name was Lyle Fife. Very simple education. Ended up forming a uh, lighting company called Fife Electric. Ended up, at one point, buying the Detroit Lions with five or six other guys. He sold them to... Ford, and they've been bad ever since. (laughs) That was him. That was his life. This man was a great athlete. He knew everybody. Just an amazing man, but he was intimidating. He and my grandmother divorced when my mom was young, and my mom didn't talk to my grandfather for decades. My mom and dad got married, and he didn't come to the wedding. She didn't invite him. She sent back every wedding gift unopened. As those of us who've gone through Personally, in one way or another, the trauma of divorce, perhaps especially as a child, she was just scarred greatly and didn't want anything to do with him. Thanks be to God that didn't remain the way it was. In fact, she cared for him every day of his life, about the last five, six, seven years of his life. She visited him every day, prayed with him, became his real caregiver. But at that time, that wasn't the case. So my mom lived with her mom, very Protestant woman, upper class. She was, uh, again, a gracious woman, but she had a lot of money. My mom went to the University of Michigan. She met my dad. My dad was a son of poor Italian immigrants from upstate New York, very Catholic, very poor, not a lot going for him, except that he was hungry. So he meets my mom. They end up falling in love. My mom's mom wants nothing to do with this guy. She's Protestant. She's Gross Point. He's Italian. He's Catholic. He lives in upstate New York, some podunk little town. I went to visit, again, the town where my dad grew up, maybe... 10 years ago, and I looked at him as we were leaving. I said, Dad, I can't thank you enough for leaving here. (laughs) God bless people who can live in small towns. I mean that very sincerely, but I ain't one of them. I like the noise somehow. I like to be contemplative, but I like the noise. There's something attractive in it. So my mom's mom is trying to talk them out of getting married, and she's trying everything she can to make this not happen. Finally, she looks at my mom one day, and she says, Honey, if you marry this man... You are never going to own a car in your life. (laughs) Now, for those of you who don't know, my dad ended up doing pretty well for himself. He graduated from the University of Michigan. He got his master's. He had one interview in his whole life, got hired by a big eight firm, left the big eight firm, went to Chrysler, and then he became chairman and chief executive officer of Chrysler. In fact, he almost never did own a car in his life. (laughs) He just bought one two weeks ago for the first time since like 1968. He said when the auto industry was going through these nightmares back in the 70s, which is when he was chairman and chief executive officer, he was looking out his window one day and there's thousands of cars that are all his. And he wanted to pick up the phone, call his mother-in-law and say, "Huh? never own a car, huh? (laughs) So that was my mom and dad. They were in our... My heroes, and I think my sister Lynn's heroes, and all my siblings' heroes. They had a way, and still have a way, of just making everybody feel really at home. And they taught us as children that to love God was it. And as a young boy, because of my dad's position, it was an extremely powerful witness to see the way he lived his life. I mean, they used to publish his salary, for crying out loud. So... I knew my dad was successful. I knew not only from what I read about and from going to his office and from 
watching him travel all over. From all that he did, I knew he was a successful man. I also knew he was a strong man because I interacted with him all the time. He was a great athlete. He had a lot of drive. He succeeded in everything he did, even though he probably had to reach harder than some people who might have had more natural gifts. He just is a bulldog in terms of tenacity. And I saw him every night before he went to bed on his knees. He used to ride an exercise bike. And every morning he'd get up really early and he'd go downstairs into our basement and he'd get on his exercise bike and he'd grab a Bible and he'd read the scriptures. And then he'd, he'd have commentaries lying. bike was next to a pool table. There was the Bible and then all these commentaries. And as he would work out every morning, he would study scripture. And then he'd go to mass. And then he went to work. When he traveled all over the country and the world, the only thing that anybody was ever told about this man when they came to pick him up for the first time was, you better know where a Catholic church is because he's going to go to mass in the morning. And so they would take him to mass and then he'd go about the day. Well, again, just to watch that as a boy was huge. Without him ever saying anything, and he said plenty, trust me. The press used to call him the flamethrower. He said plenty. But without him ever having to say anything, I just watched him and knew that's what a man is. A man loves the Lord. man reads the scriptures. man cares for his wife. man takes care of his children. man does all these things. So I saw that. And a trigger for my mom's conversion was a healing that happened. We live through one of the healings that you read about in the scriptures. Just like Jesus walked into Capernaum one day and they're bringing sick people to him. He's laying hands on them or he's just talking to them and he's driving out demons or he's saying to people who can't walk, walk, and they get up and walk. We saw that happen. My mom, as I mentioned from a couple years before I was born until about the time I was 12 or so, couldn't move, basically. She had several fusions done on her back. She used to go back and forth to the hospital for special surgery in New York She wore a brace all the time. We had special chairs in the house for her to sit in to keep her back upright. She couldn't sit for long. She couldn't walk for long. She couldn't lie down for long. She lived in traction in a hospital bed in our living room for much of my early life. My mom and dad supposedly met with my dad watching my mom hit a grand slam in a softball game at Michigan. I couldn't picture my mom swinging a bat to save my life. I just never saw her do that. And then one day, my oldest sister who, uh, together with my two other sisters, all left the church. They're these kind of classic people who, right after Vatican II, they left the church and met the Lord. And they did. And they clearly did. Get to them in a second. But my oldest sister, she was part of some non-denominational, might even have been Assembly of God. I'm not sure what it was. She was at some place. I think she was either living in Chicago or St. Louis at the time. And she was at a prayer meeting. And she's at a prayer meeting and all these people are praying and somebody at the prayer meeting says, you know what, there's somebody here who's got somebody in their family who's really sick, bad back or something. And I think, I'm convinced God wants to heal them. So my oldest sister Mary Kay, she's like, I know who that is. That's my mom. So she picks up the phone, calls home, says, Mom, Mom, I just left this prayer meeting. I want to let you know that someone was there. They had a sense that someone with a bad back is going to get healed. I think it's you. And my mom's sitting there saying, oh, yeah. I think she said actually to her, Honey, I wish I had your faith. And she hung up the phone. And after she hung up the phone, she said to herself, What have I got to lose? So she just started to thank God for healing her. And my sister might correct me wherever you are, but I want to say it was within two weeks. Within two weeks, my mom was playing tennis. I mean, my mom couldn't move. It was like one day my mom was an invalid, and the next day my mom became the most athletic, I mean this, the most athletic woman I've ever seen. It was right out of the Gospel of Luke or Matthew or John or Mark. It was unbelievable. This wasn't something like you're sitting here listening to me going, "Mm, yeah, right, sure. We lived this. I mean, we threw out the chairs. We threw out the braces. We threw out the hospital bed. We threw out everything. My mom just went through this miraculous healing that was out of this world. And the impact that that made on maybe especially me because I'm the youngest and I was such a young boy at the time. I was 12 or so was it just became really clear God can do anything, anything. And what he can do didn't just happen a long time ago. It happens now. He's not done breaking into people's lives. He just broke into my mom's life. How much more real can it get? He just broke into my mom's life. My dad was CEO at the time of Chrysler, and because of my mom's sickness, my mom could never go anywhere with him. And then all of a sudden, boom, my mom shows up at all these gatherings that he's at. And, you know, people are introducing themselves. Hi, I don't believe I've met you. You are? I'm Thelma Ricardo. Did I tell you about what Jesus did for me? <laughs> You're like, whoa! 
Because why? Because she knew. I mean, she didn't read a book. She didn't hear a story. She didn't listen to a talk. She didn't watch a TV show. God barged into her life, broke it all apart, put it all back together for the better, and nothing was ever the same for her. And it hasn't been the same since. Or for the rest of my family. And so perhaps partly because of that, I don't know, my sisters were all in a different place already. They were already married by that point. But again, there was just this normalcy and this, this expectancy of we're supposed to be asking God to do like great things, like intervene in everything that's going on in our life. Not just say the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, bless us, O Lord, in these, I guess, which we're about to receive. Nothing wrong with that. It's a great prayer. But you got something going on in the family? Let's talk to the Lord and ask him to help. Because he just did that. So if he just did that, what else will he do? And we saw thing after thing after thing after thing. And that was the home that I grew up in. My mom and dad started leading prayer meetings and Bible studies. My mom had this fellowship of women who used to come over to our house every day. After school, I saw all these people parade into our house. And they all just sat at the feet of my mom. Who to this day, I've never heard anybody say anything negative about. Except me, when I was a teenager. Probably my sisters as well. And then my sisters and my brother, again, they got married when I was eight. So they were out of the house. My dad realized he had to build an addition onto the house because it was getting too crowded. So he decides to build an addition onto his house. The same year he builds an addition, all three of my sisters got married. (laughs) So I just had this big, huge, massive house, me and my brother, to kind of play around with. But my family's very close, and at least was before I got ordained probably, but... We used to spend all this time together. And again, as a young boy, I saw from the example of my sisters and their husbands something that just made it abundantly clear that they were happy. And they were happy because they knew Jesus. That was why. They still had problems. They had issues in their marriages. They had issues with finances. They had issues with jobs. They had issues with kids. They had all the issues that everybody's got. But I knew watching them, I knew this, that's sooner or later, how I'm going to have to live if I really want to be happy. I just didn't want to live like that. I knew from the way they lived, I knew from the example that they gave, that was what life was really all about. Put God first, family second, everything else after that. Not just God first by go to Mass on Sunday. Put God first. Read His Word. Know His Word. Know Him. Ask Him, Lord, what am I not doing that I'm supposed to be doing? What is your plan for me now? Our dinner conversations were like little treaties on what God was doing in everybody's life. We talked about everything else too, but there was no hesitancy to talk about faith like that. Not to talk about faith, talk about God. Somebody said to my brother-in-law a couple years ago, I think he went to visit somebody who was dying, and I think the person's father or mother was there and he walked in he said hi you know i I know your son or i know your daughter from uh, saint anastasia catholic church at the time and person said i really don't want to talk about religion and he said i don't either i want to talk about jesus that was the way our family spoke like most people i went to high school and i began to live what i would call a pretty strong double life so from the time i was a youth actually from my er my earliest memories of crucifix the crucifix that hangs on holy name And I remember being in church one day. I don't know how old I was. I have no really early childhood memories, mainly because I experienced some traumas that were pretty painful. But my earliest vivid memory is of the cross and the Lord hanging on the cross and somehow sensing, I don't know how I would have said this then, but sensing that happened for me. And it must mean everything for me. So I just prayed as a kid. God was extremely real. And I talked to him from the day I can remember. And then when I got to high school, I kept talking to him and I kept saying to him something along the lines of, I'm really sorry for what I'm doing because I know you're real and I know you love me and I know you have a better way, but I don't want it. I know the way my mom and dad are living. I know the way my sisters are living. I know the way my brother is living. That's the way to want to live, but I don't want to live it. It still looked like lack to me. Even though I saw that they were happy, it looked like less because it looked like restrictions. It looked like all the things that were coming alive in me that I wanted to do had to die and I didn't want to kill him. So perhaps like many of you, I lived what I would call a pretty pagan life. I went to church at least so long as I still lived at home. The moment I went to college, I stopped going to church. I probably went sporadically to church from the time I was a freshman in college until I was uh, 25. 
And I got into a pretty serious relationship with a young girl when I was in high school. That lasted for seven years. There were a lot of great things about the relationship, but it was not a great relationship. At least it wasn't a real pure one. She has, like you have, many of us have anyway, a ton of scars as a result of that. Thanks be to God, I never did drugs, beyond grateful for that, but I drank like a fish. In fact, when I was in college, I was concerned that I might be an alcoholic because I would drink and I couldn't get drunk. And two things significantly changed my life when I was in college. So by now, I'm eight years of just kind of floundering, doing all the different things that so many of us do. I never went to class. I went to Michigan, but I never went to class. I rarely went to class. Somehow I got out of there with a diploma, but I rarely went to class. I just used to live in a gym. I'd play basketball all day long. And then uh, two things happened. Thanks be to God, I played basketball all day long, because that's how God caught me. There were a group of guys on campus, come to find out that they were in a bunch of campuses all around the country, who made it a point to work on college campuses to do evangelization. And so there was a set of guys who were great athletes who used to go to the gyms to meet people, to share the Lord. And I was one of them. And so I got to know these guys who were my age, maybe a couple years older than me, who were great athletes, who were really Christian. Not like annoyingly, I'm going to beat you over the head, you know, with the Bible Christians, not that kind of stuff. They were just, again, like my family. They did all the things, most of the things, that I loved, but at the center of everything they did was him. And it was so attractive because there was such a freedom in them. It was one thing to see it in my parents. It was another thing to see it in my sisters. But now there were people my age who had all the different desires that I had and all the different experiences that I had, who liked what I liked, who had the Lord first. And I just ran to that. It was like a magnet for me. And so I got to know them, got to get invited to some different things that they were doing, began to kind of hang out with them a little bit. Still not really going to church, still doing a whole set of things I should have been doing. But it made a huge impact in my life, knowing that they were around. So it was convenient. If I, if I really wanted God, I could go to them. And if I really wanted, like me, I could stay with where I was. And then one night, I can remember this clear as a bell. I was living on Gettys and Observatory, 1335 Gettys. It was the third floor of a three-story red brick apartment complex. They faced each other. Know that one? It's kind of across the street from the old Strickland's Market. I'm there one night, and, you know, it's college, so it could have been a Tuesday night for all the nights that you have a party. But it was some big party going on in our apartment, like any other night. And I had three roommates that I lived with, three of the guys, and we had a bunch of people in the house or in the apartment, whatever, and it was loud. And I was in my bedroom working on a paper or something. And I remember walking out of the bedroom, and I opened the door, and I stepped out. I was about to go outside and have a drink or do whatever. And it was like scales just fell off my eyes for the first time in my life. I walked right out of the room, saw all these people in my apartment, and it just looked so stupid. It was like this blinding clarity. And I went, oh, there has to be more to life than this. I just turned right around and walked back in my room. And one of the young women who lived below our apartment, she came up and knocked at my door. You know, She said, hey, aren't you coming out? And I said, no, I don't think so. I think I'm done with that. I didn't understand it, but I think I'm done with that. And I made a series of commitments at that point that I was going to try to really begin to change my life. Those kind of held more or less true for a period of time. But I knew really clearly God had just done something. He just revealed something to me in a way that I hadn't experienced before, that everything that I was throwing my energy into was a waste. Nothing can outweigh the advantage of knowing Jesus Christ. All I experienced at that time was lack. I didn't get to experience him. So I continue to get involved with these guys. They make a big difference in my life. There's a little community of people out in Ann Arbor that I'm hanging out with. Then I graduated from college. I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. I have a degree in English and communications. What in the world are you going to do with a degree in English and communications? I didn't have any idea whatsoever. I was the typical 21, 22-year-old man who just got out of college. I didn't have a clue. I didn't want to be an engineer, but I always envied engineers because it's like, hey, you know what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You're going to be an engineer. That's great. What are you doing? I don't know. Something will come along, but nothing came along. So nothing had my interest. Nothing had my interest. I decided I would live in this small little house of some of the guys that I met, kind of connected with the people playing basketball. Group of guys my own age, pretty devout, normal guys, healthy relationships. This was a lot of fun. And uh, one of the guys who was living in the house with me, he managed this little co-op grocery store, this little hole-in-the-wall place. He knew I was looking for a job, so he kept saying, you know, if you ever want, I got a job for you. You can work with me. I need a guy in the deli. 
Want to work in the deli? His name was Paul. And I remember saying, Paul, I, just shut up, Paul. I'm, you know, thanks very much for your prayers, but I'm never going to work with you, let alone for you. Well, obviously, somehow the Lord made it abundantly clear that I was supposed to work there. And so I went home to tell my dad this. So I just got out of college. This was August. My oldest sister at the time was living in Egypt. I had just come back from visiting her. I decided, okay, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. I need a job. My dad had been retired for eight years at this point, but he still knew a lot of people. He was trying to set me up with all these interviews, which would have been great and all the things that I thought I wanted to do. But I'm sitting there in these eight-hour interviews going, this is not exciting. I don't want to do this with my life. So I drive home. I was living on Walnut Street in Ann Arbor, close to the Mud Bowl, if you know Ann Arbor. And I'm driving home. I get to my dad. Just my dad. He's alone in his kitchen. I don't have anywhere near my father's gifts, but I'm his youngest child, and I'm sure if my dad thought anybody would do something close to what he did, it might be me, and I was about to shatter that illusion for all eternity. And he is my hero. I mean this very strongly. So I look at him. I say, Dad, um, thanks a lot for uh, all the interviews you've been lining up. I'm going to stay in Ann Arbor, and I'm going to work in this little co-op, and I'm going to bake bread. So the flamethrower was <laughs> <is> the... <laughs> you know, in essence, I just said, Dad, I'm really grateful for shelling out about $120,000 for me over the past four years. I'm really appreciative of that. I'm, I don't have a clue what I'm going to do with my life. I've squandered your money over the last four years. And I'm really grateful that you gave me the chance to do that. That's pretty much what I told him. And to my dad's everlasting credit, he turns and looks at me and he says, Son, whatever you do, I will bless and he looks right at me and says, you could be a priest and I'll bless it. I think he said that because I was getting religious. I said, Dad, I don't want to be a priest. Don't worry about it. You know, I, I very much wanted to get married and have a family and be like them and be like my sisters and my brother. So I'm driving home. I leave his house. I left his house free. That's what my dad just gave me. My dad just gave me permission. That's what happened, which I needed. I didn't realize this at the time. I've come to really understand it later. He gave me permission to do whatever it is that God was calling me to do, even though I didn't have a clue what God was calling me to do. So I was driving home. My folks lived in Birmingham at the time, and I'm driving down M14, just on the other side of this church. And I had a little Christian music on. I don't typically like a whole lot of Christian music. I find it kind of sappy, but I had something on at the time, which I really liked. And I'm driving, and um, as I'm driving, I started to, I think the only time in my life I started to weep. Not cry, weep. I mean, like I couldn't catch my breath. And I couldn't catch my breath because I felt like everything that I was holding on to was going. It was like the first time I'd ever made a decision. Because the reason I made this decision was for the Lord. And I came to realize that to follow the Lord, it's going to be tough sometimes. There's a cross involved. It's going to cost. And I was sensing this. I felt like my heart was breaking. So I'm weeping as I'm driving by. And I'm three miles from here. I'm struck by this every day when I come to church. So I'm driving on M14, I'm going west, and I'm right underneath the sign at Godfordson Road. And as I'm driving and as I'm weeping, I have a vision. And I saw the Lord like I'm seeing Mike. And he's just sitting right next to me in the car. This whole thing probably took like .00001 seconds. It seems like it took forever. And he's right next to me. I don't know how I know it's him, but who else shows up in your car, for crying out loud? So I look, and I'm back to the road, and I'm looking at him. And he just turns and he looks at me and then at a certain point he just turns aside and he takes his hand and he sticks it inside me, like right here, right in my heart. And he grabs something and he's looking at me as he does this. He says, John, these are all your dreams, all your goals, all your desires, everything you want to do with your life. And he just pulled it out and went like that. He said, John, I'm going to give you my dream, my goal, my desire, and what I want you to do with your life. And then he was gone. That was in August of 1987. I spent most of the next four years oscillating back and forth between really fervently trying to follow the Lord, although I'm still really not going to church very often, but I'm praying every day, I mean really intensely, and living as bad a life as I'd ever lived before. We're all familiar with Jonah. God appears to Jonah. Jonah's in Jerusalem. He says, Jonah, why don't you go to Nineveh? That's in Iraq. What's Jonah do? Jonah gets on a boat and he goes to Spain. <laughs> Spain is not on the way to Nineveh. So I played Jonah. So I got in the boat 
And I sailed as quick as I could away from that and still had no idea what I was doing with my life. So I had left a little deli, thanks be to God. <laughs> Worked for a Christian nonprofit organization for a while doing fundraising and development work, which turned out to be pretty handy. And then, uh, <clears throat> and then I worked for Ford. So I worked for Ford Credit. This was 1990 or so. They didn't have any jobs around here, so I went down to Ohio. I went to the University of Michigan. I lived right across the street from the Buckeye Shopping Center. I thought I was in hell. And uh, all these people with scarlet and gray everywhere, you know. I had to turn my license plate around. It was terrible. So I'm working at Ford Credit. I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. I'm frustrated as all get out. My life is empty. I live in an unfurnished apartment for about six months. I had a bed and a table. That was it in my sound system because I had umpteen thousand CDs, you know. Finally, I decided, you know, I've got to go back to school or something. This is ridiculous. I'm going to go get an MBA. Some of you who work for Ford or worked for Ford might remember Ed Lundy. Ed Lundy used to be the old CFO at Ford. He was the other guy who used to intimidate me. So my Grandpa Lyle and Ed Lundy who were a lot alike, used to scare the living daylights out of me. So I got to know Ed from doing development work. He's passed away now. He was a very generous guy to some of the work that we were doing. He was gracious to me. We go out to lunch every once in a while. So I called him and I just said, Ed, I think I'm going to go to grad school. Would you write me a letter of recommendation? He said, you should go to the seminary. <laughs> I said, Ed, I don't want to go to the seminary. I want to go to grad school. Will you write me a letter of recommendation? You should go to the seminary. I heard that. Would you be able to do this? Yeah, I'll write you a letter of recommendation. So he sends it to me, and I'm doing all the work to go to grad school. One day I'm still not going to church. I haven't been to confession in 10 years at this point in the story. But I used to bring my Bible everywhere I went. So I brought my Bible with me to lunch, and I would read it at lunch. And one day I'm, I decided I'm going to go out for a walk. I'm just about to finish all the applications for grad school, which I had no desire to get because I knew money was not the answer. I grew up with a ton of it as a child. It didn't make me happy. We got death threats from Charles Manson. That didn't exactly, you know make my day as a child. I remember walking down the stairs one day. We're about to get on a plane to fly somewhere. My dad's reading this letter, and I can see it over his shoulder. It's got swastikas all over it, and it's stamped in blood. And I went, what's that? I was like 10. He says, oh, it's some letter from uh, Charles Manson. Charles Manson? you got to be kidding me. It was one of these, you know, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill your wife, we're going to slaughter your children kind of letters. Dad, I don't think I want to get on the plane. <laughs> so I knew money wasn't the answer. Money wasn't going to make me happy. I knew that. But I figured I needed something to get in the door. So I'm dragging my heels to go to grad school. I've got my Bible with me. I walk out at lunch. I open it up. You ever do this? You open the Bible. Okay, whatever you say, Lord. It's a dangerous game to play, but in this time it worked. And I open up to Matthew 19. And Matthew 19 is where Jesus says, Some men are born eunuchs. Some men are made eunuchs by others. And some men make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. He who can accept it should accept it. And as soon as I read it, it was like I just got kicked in the stomach. And I remember looking up immediately because I knew the Lord was talking to me. I said, Lord, you've got to be kidding me. What do you want me to do with my life? And I heard this voice just really clear to say, out of nowhere, say, John, I'm inviting you to live single and to do it as a priest. And I went, what? I don't even go to church. I don't know anything about the priesthood. I knew one priest that I thought highly of, mainly because I didn't go to church, so it's kind of hard to get to know anybody if you don't go to church, huh? (laughs) I mean, nobody. I didn't know what you did, how long it took. I didn't know any of that. I remember closing the Bible, and I just said, Lord, if that's really you, then you've got to give me desire, because I don't want to do that. And that took at most two days. I don't know what day of the week. I think it was a Wednesday you know, I wrestle with it all night, and don't sleep, next day go to work, don't sleep, wake up Friday morning, and I have this crystal clarity about my life. Like, I just woke up with this extraordinary desire to be a priest. I didn't know anything about priesthood. I had an extraordinary desire to be like Paul. Paul I knew, because I read the Gospels and I read his letters over and over and over again. I knew Paul, and that was attractive. And so I woke up, I have this clarity, I know nothing about anything. I call a friend of mine who'd been in seminary, I said, uh, what does a guy do if he thinks he's going to be a priest or wants to be a priest? He says, well, you call a vocation director. Oh, what's a vocation director? Ah, it's this guy that the bishop assigns to talk to people. Okay. Who is it? Me. You? (laughs) Are you nuts? 
Is the job market that hard? <laughs> Called the guy, said, hi, I want to be a priest. He says, okay, and you are. <laughs> Why don't you come in and we can talk? <laughs> so I go meet this guy. He's a pastor up in the northern part of the archdiocese now. And the moment I walk into seminary, I mean, the very first moment I cross the threshold, I've never been in the building before that. The moment I walk through the front door, it's much like I hear many of you who are married say, the moment I met my wife or the moment I met my husband, I just knew, even though he annoyed the living daylights out of me the first time we met, I knew we were going to get married or I knew she was going to be my wife. And that's how it felt to me. Without any prior experience, I just walked through the front door and was like, whoa, I am home. Like, I'm home. This is why he made me. This is what my life's about. This is why I exist, at least on this earth, is to be here right now so I can be here now. And so I went to seminary and then got ordained and now here I am. Now, why do I share all that? I don't share that so we can stay a little bit longer tonight. I share that with a point keeping in mind the theme of the mission. Paul Benedict talks about these lights close by. Without exception, all of the lights close by were laymen and women. If it weren't for the witness, the example, the lives of my mom, my dad, my sisters, my brother, my brother-in-laws, my sister-in-law, my mom and dad's friends, who were remarkable friends, people like Ed Lundy, who was unabashedly Catholic, if you don't know. He had two loves, they say, in his life. Ford Motor Company and the Catholic Church, but not in that order. All of those people, and so many more. The guys that I met when I was at U of M on a basketball court, a guy who came up to me and prayed with me in the middle of a game when I broke my finger and said, hey, I ought to just pray with you right now for that. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Everybody that influenced me, every single person that influenced me, did not wear a collar or a veil or was a deacon. I didn't know any of them. They were you. This vocation, the lay vocation, whose task it is to be like that lamp that burns atop this church, to be a city on a hill, to be tangibly, palpably, visibly, joyfully, attractively a witness to everybody who knows you of the difference that Jesus makes. So the next couple of nights, I want to talk about how it is that we're supposed to do that, what it is that he expects of you and some practical ways for us to go about doing this. So we'll give some really practical things, I hope, in the nights ahead. I want to leave you with this thought. I have a uh, good friend of mine who's an executive at a PR firm who I got to know a number of years ago when I was first ordained and has been a great friend of mine ever since. I don't know all the details of his life. I do know that somehow I think the Lord used me in some small way to kind of bring him back at least to a deeper relationship with the Lord and a deeper commitment to his faith. And one day he said to me, This was probably eight or nine years ago. We were talking about something that had happened and how he came back. And he just looked at me. He says, you know, you never know who's listening. You never know who's listening. But if you're here tonight and you have children that are at home, you know they're listening. You know they're watching. You know, even when they may look like or try to make you think that they're not paying attention to you or you're not making a difference in their lives, you know because you were there. They're listening and they're watching you. And they're seeing whether or not the light is shining brightly or not. For those of us who don't have children or whose children are grown, whether it's at work or our friends, there are a host of people who know that we are Catholic and they watch us and they listen to us. The question is, what do they see and what do they hear? Because whether they know it or not, and even whether we know it or not, and you're convinced of it all the time, Every single human heart, every single human heart is restless for God. Every heart. Everybody who flocks to fame or to money or to sex or to drugs or to whatever they go to, whatever their pursuit of happiness, behind the happiness, what they want, who they want, is Him. They just don't know it. And they won't know it unless those of us who know him tell them. These are extraordinary days to be a Christian. Extraordinary days. Because there are so many people who are so restless. 
the economy and the struggles that we've gone through are a great gift to us. They have shattered the illusion that so many of us were living underneath that just said, hey, you know what, life's just going to be great. We're going to have financial security. It's going to be wonderful. Well, that just kind of all went into limbo. And all of a sudden, we're beginning to ask some questions again about what's life really all about and what am I living for and what's really going to make me happy? And he has the answer, but the answer is in us because he's in us and he wants to shine through us and he expects us to shine. So may that happen. May we ask the Lord to turn up the flame, to raise the wick, to spray an aerosol can, light a lighter there so that you get a huge flame. Do something. (laughs) Evidence of that misspent youth. (laughs) Let's ask him to make us bright, joyful, normal, attractive witnesses of the difference that Jesus makes. Let's keep tapping each other and our friends on the shoulder, saying, hey, let me tell you about someone I know. Why don't you come with me to something that's happening whatever day? God wants to use us. He has tremendous confidence in us. That's why he's made us. He has lofty expectations of us. Let's embrace those wholeheartedly as individuals and as a parish family. I'd ask for us in the days ahead, especially in these next three, four days, to really pray for one another. Pray for our brothers and sisters who aren't here. Pray for our brothers and sisters who check the box when they come to church. That's what I used to do if I even went to church. Some of us have done that. We can all tell this story. Pray for those who don't know him. May they come to know him. But the way they're going to come to know him usually is by us talking about him. And even before we talk about him, by us letting him just shine through us. I said a couple months ago now, my desire as a pastor is for Plymouth to be on fire. I really mean that. I want this city ablaze. More importantly, God wants this city ablaze. He wants everybody to know him. Let's do our part to make that happen. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. See you tomorrow. On our next program, Father Ricardo continues with the personal evangelism thing. He centers that talk on God's saving grace and the many gifts that have been heaped upon us, including the countless people in our lives. This has been Crisis the Answer program number 811. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 811. 2010 Turning Up the Flame Mission Number 1 Lights That Lead Me to the Light Father John Ricardo is a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a non-profit organization called Acts 29 which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.